The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that come from loss. Today, my guest is Stu Maddox. Stu is a multi-award winning filmmaker with international credits whose many goals include strengthening the queer community by bringing together its different generations. His films include Jen Silent, the widely used documentary about gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender older people hiding their lives to survive discrimination, bullying, and abuse. His first documentary as an independent filmmaker was the critically acclaimed Bob and Jack's 52-year adventure about an army sergeant who began an affair with his commanding officer in 1952. The two men came out to the troops in their unit and are still together a half century later. A great accomplishment. Welcome, Stu. Hi, Cheryl. Good to be here. Really glad to have you. And first off, I have to kind of tell on myself, because I've been doing some speaking and writing myself about LGBT end of life. And I was being interviewed for Karen Wyatt's End of Life University, which is a great and worthwhile program. And a caller said, of course you've heard of Jen Silent. And I hadn't, um, despite, you know, a lot of research I'd done to write a paper in this and that. So, of course, I'm really thrilled I got to see the mu- movie and have you on the show. Well, People I'm really should flattered know. that somebody would say, of course you've seen this film that I've made. I, I'm sure most people haven't, but uh, those that have, I think it's been a life changer, including myself. Yeah, and we'll certainly be talking about that. I think she was in Texas, too, so not uh, Boston, where the film was made, and not California, where you live. So um, you're getting around. (laughs) Um, You know, I, I sort of, one thing that happened for me watching the film is it really ignited thoughts about my own history. Um, I came to the Bay Area when I was maybe 18, and I was, you know young and and not that wise, although I thought I was, (laughs) and the older lesbians, which at that point we were considering over 30, would kind of look at us and they'd say out loud or to themselves and you could see it in their faces, you have it so good and you have no idea what we've been through, right? So now I'm kind of feeling that way myself and uh, your film really brought that up for me, um, the sense of the changes in the community and um, and the the kind of painful history we have. Yeah, I, I suppose it's one of the benefits of making um, progress so quickly is that we also become um, historic that much quicker. 
So, mm. yeah, I, I really feel like when I talk to people who are starting out that I'm telling them about things that they have never heard of. Um, much, much of the AIDS crisis for me was an important part of my life. I came out in the mid-80s, in the middle of that, and, and now it's um, a page in the history book, and there's a little bit of coming to terms with that. It's, I'm glad it's history, but it's also what do we do with that page now, and, and how do we make sure that the lessons that are learned then personally are used now um, and passed on? Absolutely, and also, it's a page in the history book, but uh, also, you know, as your, as your film points out, and uh, there's been a lot of work going on about this in San Francisco um, in a recent report, um, it's still very present day for people who lost all their community and maybe are HIV positive and now facing old age. It's certainly current in that way in terms of what you and I are here to talk about, kind of um, what happens when people need services uh, at the I end of their agree. lives. Yeah, there's a whole, you know, additional grieving process that goes on now when you need those friendships that you would have had your entire life more and more as you age and not having them. And I really do believe that that's when those lasting friendships of people who are going to be there for you in the crunch as we all grow older and we lose loved ones, um, those relationships start early in life. So there's kind of a void there. Well, and particularly uh, to just um, maybe open the listener's eyes a, a little bit to this, um, I know in the, the people I know in the LGBT community, many of them are uh, more family to their friends than to their um, families of origin uh, because so many people are rejected or there's discomfort, uh, really hard to get that support from from family. Yeah, there's that phrase of it being your family of choice rather than your biological family. And I think today it's easier to say, well, I am loved and cherished by my family than say it was 30 years ago when we would have been more estranged as LGBTQ people. But I still think that estrangement is in degrees and we still face a loved one in our family who while everybody else may be perfectly happy and celebratory of your life, there may be one person who isn't. And that is a degree of estrangement that kind of compounds itself um, later on in life as, as we need our family more, our biological family more and more. So, yeah, I think the safe thing is often to pick people who we know are going to be our family, friends. I also feel um, and observe that... Even when families evolve, uh, it's usually an evolutionary process. Uh, when people first come out, uh, I mean, my parents came to be more than 100% supportive, but they weren't at first. And so then you rely on the people in your community, and those become very, very deep bonds beyond maybe what we think of as friendship. Because we've all been through this experience of being either disowned or estranged or, or whatever from our families. So it's a commonality that kind of brings us together as kind of this family of choice that I, that I spoke of. I think you're absolutely right. 
I have another little confession to make, which is that regardless of the fact that I'm a lesbian, I kind of fell in love with Lawrence in your film a little bit. Um, <laughs> he just had such a big heart. The the I think I've got the right name. The man who opens the film, and I mean I've I felt his energy throughout the film. Um, and he is on that cusp of having been closeted for so long and maybe even pushed out by aging, um, which is interesting because, um, you know, I'm th- I was thinking of the I, – I came out and I was pretty open right away, but I stayed within my community almost entirely, so it was easier to be open. Then when I had kids um, – I, I sort of had to come out because otherwise, who did they think these two women were? And it's really vulnerable to do that. Yeah, you know, we always go through a coming out process multiple times a day, it seems like to me. There's always, and that's part of the stress, you know. They talk about this minority stress that people go through, and it's different for each minority. Absolutely. And for us, the constant coming out that and we really have to do it when we start depending on people later in life. Uh, we don't have to come out, but we start to navigate and edit our, our lives Absolutely. on the fly, oftentimes many times a day. And there's always this moment where you can shut up or you can speak up. And a lot of times it's just easier and safer just to kind of edit your life. But that has its own internal kind of effect as well. You can't always be out. Let's let's listen to Lawrence. We're ready with that now. <laughs> the streets are lined with ordinary faces, ordinary people that you see every day. When I look to the left, when I look to the right, I see everybody. I'll be there in a few years. I see just kids, children, gay couples, straight couples. I am seeing cheering people really happy that we older LGBT citizens, that we're still here. The young people today, I don't think they... I can't grasp what it was like all that transpired in the past to make it so fabulous today. We're not just talking about name calling. Your very life could be at jeopardy. You know, these things are internalized. And now all of a sudden you're at a point in your life where you are becoming more and more vulnerable and you need help. He's going to help you on the inside, okay? I never imagined 50 years ago I would see all kinds of people. In that moment, it was sublime. Because I could look and I could see me. You know, we were talking a little bit earlier about the wide arc of change and uh, that scene, which is the opening scene of the film, I believe, 
really uh, affected me because the first time I ever went to a march, there were 250 people there. It was year two. And now millions of people uh, celebrate. And, of course, it was very scary to go to those events at that point. You might get heckled and hurt and all the rest. Yeah, and, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day who had gone to the second parade in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. It was just the second Pride Parade this year. So we also suffer from this, um, while everything is happening very fast, it's not happening very fast everywhere. Everywhere. So there's mm-hmm. a little bit of a, uh, of a difficulty of knowing where we are together on this path. So I think that that's part of our story as well. And I guess we'd have to talk about uh, backlash as well. Um, that uh, there are there are places where the very fact that progress has been made is very um, uh, unwelcome and leads to some pretty intense um, anti-LGBTQ activity or action. I think that it's a national movement right now to pedal backwards a little bit. We kind of made so many gains, but now we're seeing a movement in states to pass moral objection laws, the laws that say you can morally object to providing services for LGBT people based on your religious beliefs. And when it comes to taking care of, say, older people, which is the subject of this film, that is absolutely a non-starter. I mean, you know, you need to be able to depend on people who come to your house or people coming into your room to providing the same quality of care as, as anyone else. And the prospect now of not only wondering whether that person is accepting, but whether that person will even show up is a whole other level of this LGBT aging experience that was unanticipated and now is, is something that we have to deal with. I know even in San Francisco, you'd think that's a fairly um, informed location. Um, people are going back in the closet to get into uh, nursing homes and uh, elder communities, which means then um, they can't really feel comfortable having their, their community members come to visit them. It means they're very isolated as well. Uh, did you encounter that at all when you were making the film? People were having that experience? Absolutely. And I still hear a lot of stories. And I think I'll continue to hear stories of people who are afraid of basically being outed by their friends visiting them. So they tell their friends simply to stop coming. And then they're completely isolated. And oftentimes it accelerates, you know, the latter third of their life. They don't say the friends that they've, you know, the ones that will check on them and make sure that they are okay are no longer coming around because they've been sent away. Because the person who is afraid that somebody, oftentimes it's another person living in, a, in, the, in the place, another client, not so much a, a caregiver, is um, making it uncomfortable for them to be their authentic selves. And it's not just a, about a feeling. It's about being able to talk to your caseworkers and your physicians about, you know, what, what your life experience is and, and, um, and, and that affects your health, right? 
so deeply and not to mention uh you know there's so much out there right now about having a good final chapter of life and what makes it good and all that and the basic things that make it good are eliminated by that a sense of connection a sense of being loved a sense of being able to be who you are all of those are diminished if you have to be afraid that people will um, uh, discriminate against you for one quality of your life. Yeah, and, and the good news is that there is a lot of training going on around making people more culturally confident, they call it, more sensitive to the you know, unique experiences of LGBT people. Um, so that's great. However, I think the real challenge now is the other people who live there with you. How do you train them? I don't know. I mean, I think it probably starts um, top-down, setting a, setting a policy or, or a statement that says we accept all people, we are a welcoming environment, and kind of walking the, the talk a little bit, even with the residents there, and kind of calling them on the carpet when their behavior is not, not caring for all the people that they live with. I completely agree with you, and it and it reminds me that when my youngest child, we were looking for a school for her, and we were going to lots of tours. Nobody mentioned anything about uh, gay families, and we went to one school that said, we welcome everyone regardless of sexual identity, gender, you know. They went through the entire list in the meeting with all the parents. That's where she went. You know, it just really does make a big difference when that is a stated policy. And you know going in, you're going to be backed up. So I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm feeling it'll be similar, you know, in this, in this uh, with me aging. I'm in that, getting to that older category now. So let's, uh, let's come back the, to... The, 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 the amazing thing is that the, the parallels there between... Uh, people starting out as people in the latter third of lives. I always say that, that, you know, the bullies that are there at the beginning of life are actually there on the back end. And this time you can't run uh, quite as fast. This time you might be, they might be your roommates, you know. And right. so, and we're, and we're all living in, you know, we're all playing in a sandbox again, basically. So, yes. Um, so let's, let's come back to that in a minute. It's time for a break. And I want to talk a little bit more about that when we come back. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America for my Facebook, Twitter, email, the whole works. And to find Stu Maddox, go to stumaddox.com. It's S-T-U-M-A-D-D-U-X.com. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. 
relationship issues, anxious, parenting challenges, no more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Every day, you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field. One day, you hear one thing, and the next day, you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before. How do you know what's right? Try tuning in to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan. Our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well-being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Stu Maddox, a filmmaker whose amazing film, Jen Silent, dives into the dangerous situation facing many LGBTQ seniors as they age and need to rely on systems of support. And that idea you brought up before the break, Stu, about uh, we're returning to the same sandboxes where we might have been uh, bullied and, and treated badly at, at other points in our lives as LGBTQ people is very important to me because um, so many people are going into the end of life with fear, not necessarily about uh, ailing and, and dying, but about how they're going to be treated. Oh, yeah, especially LGBT people. I think that's the biggest fear is is not being treated with dignity and respect and um, and, the, and the truth is, you know, there is a movement to allow us to stay in our homes longer as we age, and that's fantastic. But at some point, it it's actually uh, can be more beneficial to be around other people and to to be in, a, in an environment where you are basically back in the sandbox as you would have been. I, I mean, I think that that's that's an analogy that I mean is is as far as being around other people and, and people you may not always want to be around. It's, you know, it's like living in a, in a, in an apartment building again, for example. In a, in a fishbowl. Yeah. A little bit in a fishbowl. Yeah. You know, instead of the <laughs> well, locker, and you, you go to the, to the lunchroom. For sure. And then there are issues like this. There is in fact a very, well, a largely LGBTQ uh, retirement community it was stepped up care in the whole works in in the bay area very expensive and many of us don't we have also um 
experienced um, discrimination in employment and differential incomes, etc. So uh, I think economics is big here, don't you? Right. I think that there is this myth that LGBTQ people have all this disposable income and wealth because maybe we didn't have kids as much. Maybe, you know, we were more career oriented. I don't know what the stereotypes are, but the truth is that we are more impoverished as a, as a group of people than um, our mainstream counterparts by far. And if you think about it, it makes sense, particularly for lesbian couples, two women, women are traditionally paid far less than men in many cases so, you know, it's kind of a setup for not having the same amount of retirement um, assets, uh, you know, if any, at all. So, you know, there's this movement toward making all this great housing for LGBT people that's really wonderful. But there's also a movement around making affordable housing, and you, you hear about that popping up around the country, too. When I say for LGBT people, I mean LGBT-friendly. I mean, it, it oftentimes sure. spaces are... Yeah, sure. they're in. They're in. Say what traditionally would have been the gay community of the city. So, um, and you know, as we all as we grow older, it's always nice to be around our friends, people who shared experiences with us, or at least places where we can be open. Because it's a vulnerable time. If you have to shut down at that time, it's, it's first of all very hard to do. As I know from you know my wife who died, being shut down or being closed in is really hard to maintain when you're so vulnerable. Uh, I, I'm thinking of an example. I, I do uh, women with cancer groups, and there's a transgender woman in one of my groups. When she transitioned, the, the next week she was fired, and she has never again been able to um, get employment. And uh, she was highly trained. And this is the Bay Area I'm talking about. She's tried everything. And now she's extremely ill. She has no money. Uh, she's actually got a room in an apartment with a hoarder. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of the worst possible situation. She's wonderful, but her situation is so difficult. And, it's, and it all traces to being transgendered. There is this belief, this misnomer in our country that LGBT people have employment protection, and that's not the case. In fact, that is supposed to be the next big thing that we try to attain now that we've achieved some, you know, marriage equality. So, you know, that, that's an important part of making it possible for us to live our, live out our lives, you know, and those, it's, it's almost too late for people starting now. Uh, not starting now, but who are thinking about retiring now. But for people starting out now, if they had that employment protection, uh, things would be a lot better by the time they were thinking about the latter third of their lives. I think about your transgender uh, acquaintance and wonder about her additional medical uh, needs. For for trans, many trans people, there's a there's a lot of additional um, medical uh, needs that are that, that require um, lifelong commitments of resources. So how do they address that? It's, you know, particularly for transgender people, it's, um, it is a challenge. 
And and as I know from studying about it, um, there are particular health challenges in all of our LGBTQ communities that are, in fact, particular, or at least um, more common. Um, and so having healthcare providers that are aware of those things and looking out for them is vital because if they're missed, they're missed, people don't actually live as long. She had a big struggle actually getting medical people who would treat her. Uh, they just didn't want to treat her. So um, she happened to be a vet, and uh, she eventually found services. But imagine you're ill. She has um, liver cancer, and you're, try- you're having to weed through providers to find someone who will who will take you on it's it's a terribly difficult process plus you probably don't have the support group because you may have been estranged from family or friends or exactly your support group may not be as large that's it yeah absolutely that's a perfect time to talk about chrisanne in your film uh, would you like to say something about her, or sh- should we listen to the clip first and then talk about um, your relationship with her? Well, since it's a little ways into the film, let me just introduce you to Chris Ann Hembro. She was uh, someone who transitioned a little bit later in life, at uh, in her mid-50s, but she learned that she was terminally ill with lung cancer by the time she was 59, and she went through that without the support of her family. And it fell on a group of LGBT people in the Boston area community to kind of come together and create a caregiving team for her in the last few months of her life. But she always wanted to get back together with her family, even in those last few months. And so this clip kind of talks about that, I think. Expect blossoms sometimes. Amazing time. Most people that transition expect losses, sometimes a great many losses, but I didn't expect everyone. I haven't heard from them since. For two years, I desperately tried to connect with my family. And some of them, they weren't even open. They just was, this person is dead. But that plays right into how they're stuck in mourning, I think. So now I'm terminally ill with lung cancer. How long do they give you to live? About a year ago, they said 18 months. But um, just out of stubbornness, I'll probably make it 19 months anyhow. I've done it alone, and things are getting worse and worse. I I wish uh, there was a visual on radio of all of those envelopes, all of those returned envelopes, which with those harsh biting captions um, that had so much impact on me. You know, returned, no such person, um, dead. Uh, what were there, five or six envelopes 
was marked with um, brutal <laughs> reminders of rejection. Right. So while she's talking about what's happening to her, we're seeing letters that she has sent to her family trying to reinitiate contact, and they've been returned uh, oftentimes with, like you said, this really nasty stuff written on them. And um, uh, in the end, she she never quite gave up, but uh, it was interesting. This was something that I... I found out about the last few days that we were with her. She said, have you seen these letters yet? I spent so much time with her, and I'm surprised she hadn't brought them out. And I thought, well, this this really sums up the experience. And, you know, since this is basically a, a show about grief, the weight of grief of losing everybody, that's that's like you're going through a personal holocaust, really. Uh, and the and the way that people are then able to go on or not, um, regardless of that, whether they are able to find their way with that grief, um, it's it's staggering. Yeah, and I think it's important to talk just a moment about the the family of someone who transitions, uh, significant others because they go through their own grief process. The grief of what they feel is losing their father, their brother, sister, whatever. Oftentimes they don't quite have the ability to see through the transition to see the person that is still there. Mm. So there's a lot of loss going on for everybody in that situation to get to a, a, a place where the person feels better about who they are. Absolutely. But, you know, the I think part of what broke my heart uh, getting to know Chris Ann through your film is that um, my wife, who was ill for a long time, uh, just happened to be a very lovable person with a lot of people who loved her. I, I think there are probably a hundred people uh, who contributed something to our care in that time and the idea of having had none of them is just uh it just tears me apart uh i don't know if people who haven't been there can really know what it's like to need that level of support that she needed uh moment to moment 24 hour a day and the idea that people that didn't know her before that uh, came together to offer that to her, that's also quite touching to me. Yeah, I, I think so, Cheryl, it was it was interesting. I was part of that caregiving team as well, that it speaks to the need to create these relationships as soon as you can in life and nurture them throughout your life because we just knew her for the last six months of, of, of her life and that wasn't enough time for her to really... Uh, get to know us. We were sure. a bunch of strangers, basically, in her home. And so if there's anything I've learned from this particular film is that it's important to find people in your life who are going to be there for you in the crunch, who, are, who love you enough to walk you through the grieving process, the, the aging process, the really tough moments in, in your life. And those are people you can't pay uh, those are people you can't find in a, on a year's notice. Those are people really you start 
you start nurturing relationships with early in life, I think. Maybe not early, but, you know, it takes a little while. It, it absolutely does. And I'm thinking of many of my friends, you know, I'm 62, so a lot of my friends are in that that age group where we're starting to have illnesses, need help, um, all of that. And I'm really one of the few people I know that has kids. And uh, I think that's changing. There's more of a, are we going to have kids or not? It used to be, is it right to have kids? Or, you know, (laughs) is it moral? Um, But I worry. I'm concerned because of that. Um, I hope we'll all come through for each other. Uh, Obviously, kids don't guarantee that you'll be cared for. But they give you really a lot higher odds. Yeah, I, I think also that the coming together that we did through the AIDS crisis, I mean, we really came together in, in the crunch there, and mm-hmm. we were there for each other. It, it's now something we can apply as we grow older. Those, those teams of support, those places of support, we can dust off those plans and reuse them now as as we as baby boomers and Gen Xers and so on get to that place where we really need to support more. We've done it before. That's a really good point. And in my mind anyway, that was a moment where uh you know, there used to be a really big divide between, let's say, gay men and lesbians, for instance. Uh we were kind of separate communities, but that moment changed that at least in my experience. Um, You know, there was more, there were lots of lesbians helping, (laughs) you know, and a lot more interaction, at least in my community. Yeah, I think it was one of those great moments if you had, if you were lucky enough to live through it, it was a horrible time, but if you were lucky enough to see how lesbian women came together, basically cleaned up the mess, uh, and and carried on our movement as well for a while until gay men could get back on their feet, and and then we marched together forward. There's there's a lot of talk about the divisiveness of the LGBT community and how we are all different and things like that, and why we shouldn't identify and identity politics. But we are a community that has been through a lot. You can dissect us and parse us apart, but you know, we've been through some of the most amazing experiences in the last 50 years that are worth sticking together for and, and making more change as we go forward. Absolutely. I, I also feel as if um, diverse communities, in a way, should be messy in the sense that let's, ha- let's, let's be out there with what we're, <laughs> you know, what the struggles are. Let's that's actually kind of an act of trust to say, I don't like the way you did this or that, or um, I I don't know. I've gotten less and less bothered by the messiness as I've gotten older, I guess. It's time for a second. I'm glad to hear you say that. I still kind of get bothered by it. So Uh we we should all be marching together all the time in sync, but I guess it's not always (laughs) that way. Life doesn't doesn't happen that way, especially for people who have particular reasons to um, carry their own flag. 
you know, there are particular things about us that need to be heard. And that's part of what I'm valuing about today. So it's time for our second break. And listeners, you can both, you can find both of us during the break. My website address is weatheringgrief.com. And you can find Stu Maddox at stumaddox.com, S-T-U-M-A-D-D-U-X.com. Back after this break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. Hi, I'm Sam Nussbaum, WellPoint's Chief Medical Officer. We proudly support the March of Dimes mission to improve the health of babies and fight premature birth. We're helping the March of Dimes fund breakthroughs in research and community programs that help more moms have full-term pregnancies and healthy babies. Join us in working together to provide children with a healthier start in life. Visit marchofdimes.org. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm here with Stu Maddox, the filmmaker responsible for the film Jen Silent, and we've been talking about uh, some of the difficulties facing LGBT seniors. Your film was mostly the silent generation, which is probably, what would you say, 70 and older? Uh, people who probably lived through being in the closet for, for good long periods of time. Um, but of course, some of the same things, um, are affecting those of us who are, who are younger. And there's the particular impact of having been out a lifetime and then feeling the need to go in the closet to get services. So, uh, that, I can't even imagine that, to be honest. Having been out since I was 17, uh, it's really hard to picture being in that situation. Well, I think that was what was so gut-wrenching for me making this film. Was we, These were the people who fought so hard to come out and to make it possible for us to, to come out a little more easily that they are being pushed back in the closet. They've been given a freedom that they fought for, and now that they're having to give it up because they're in a situation where to be out and open might jeopardize their safety. That's just wrong. That was just kind of like butterflies in your stomach. Let's go make 
a film and expose this problem to the world, you know. But I think we've all really, we're all gen silent, even if we're just starting out, really. Mm. We've all been in this, this situation, regardless of whether we identify as LGBT or we identify by a certain faith or politics or, or ethnicity, where we have had to oftentimes either stand up or shut up. We've been in situations where it was just easier not to, to rock the boat when somebody made us feel uncomfortable around the Thanksgiving table or in a social situation. So we all know that feeling that these LGBT older people go through every day of just kind of editing ourselves, not saying anything. Mm-hmm. And when you go through it every day, it becomes the norm and you just kind of start, you know, not, not living parts of your life that are important for the health and well-being of your aging and, and living out your life successfully. And I think there's, you know, in, in the more accepting, inclusive community, a real blindness to this. Even uh, I tried to talk when I was writing this paper about uh, LGBT end of life, I tried to talk to my kids about the things I was learning and and the things I was learning were horrifying me, you know, and I wanted to say, be careful about this if you're ever finding me a place to live, you know, if it's ever on you to, to they just couldn't even hear it. Uh, you know, I'm going to have to put it in. They don't believe it's happening. They don't believe right? it's true. But it, yeah. but it is certainly true that people are being prayed over, people are, you know, being rejected, people are being bullied, and it's such a vulnerable thing to be near the end of your life. The other, the other thing that I really get from young people is that this is a problem that's going to die off with that generation. But what they don't realize is that they're living in a time where bullying was a big, you know, issue just three or four years ago. I still is, but, you know, those are the people that they're trying to change now that they'll have to face later on in life. I mean, as long as, as we have a situation where people are um, worried about being their true authentic selves when they start out, they're going to have to worry about it at the back end, too, at the, at the end. So, so I think this is one of those things that's going to take several generations, you know, Right. I don't think this is. I don't think this is something that dies off with the pre-Stonewall generation. True. Me, they're the ones that are. They'll the one, They're the ones that'll fight hardest. Have fought hardest to stay out. Absolutely. Uh, I went to a conference on Alzheimer's and in, in the LGBT community. So a lot of it was really about end of life, and the point of view of all of the speakers was that um, if we get, as LGBTQ people, our needs met in end-of-life care. It's going to serve everybody because the values that are needed to serve us, acceptance of the person as they are, um, including the community and family, you know, all of these values that would make care appropriate for us make it better for everyone else too. And... um, that that impacted me a lot, that idea that, you know, uh, it's not really just about us. It's about what people that are aging need, and it's just very obvious with us because we're often getting the opposite. 
You can even break that down a little bit more and say that if we can, if we can address the needs and, the, and celebrate the lives fully of transgender folks, then the rest of it, the L, G, and the B, and the Q, kind of comes into place as well, especially in medical settings. Mm. Yes, I, re- I remember Chris Ann saying her healthcare workers didn't want to touch her, even though obviously her illness didn't have anything to do with her gender identification, but, but she encountered that level of um, oppression in the process of trying to get care. So, you know, if um, I've talked with many hospice people who can't believe this is an issue at all, they say it's the opposite of what hospice is supposed to be, but it is an issue. And so that wakes them up to look out for it with their colleagues. You know, if we're talking about people just not really being accepted, um, they can help train each other. Yeah. And I think, I think, Chris Ann's case was really a lesson for a lot of folks who are in the hospice setting because there was a whole set of fears for Chris Ann because of her transition that I didn't even think of. You think when someone has transitioned, they are, they have transitioned completely and biologically, but that's not the case. Many mm-hmm. people who transition transition part way or all the way, however you might want to define that. They might have some surgeries and not others. They may present a certain way and not fully the other way. But for Chris Ann, uh, she still had facial hair. And her big fear when she died was that after several days that they would have an open casket funeral and she, her facial hair would show. Mm. She would be dressed as a woman. She would be made up. She would, she would be just... But, Something like that would not have been considered. So it was, so it was, uh, that was something I didn't really think of. It's very important, you know, being your authentic self all the way to the end, the very end, the last time people see you. And she did. She was, we did make sure that she was able to present completely as a woman, a beautiful woman, right up until the, the time that she was buried. Hmm. I was thinking, too, you know, um, uh, there were two people in your film, a couple, and it seemed like they'd been out and activist. Um, it seemed as if everyone else had had maybe a longer process. Well, Chris Ann didn't, didn't transition until her 50s, you said, and um, the couple of men in the film uh, came out late, late in life, and I was just wondering how you found people who would be willing to be so visible as to be in your film in the first place? Well, we worked with the LGBT Aging Project in Boston. We worked specifically with Bob Scott there, who uh, helped us find people that we wanted to be sure to show in this film. And so they were clients of the LGBT Aging Project, which is an organization that provides uh, some services for uh, LGBT older people, but also a cultural competency training for organizations to mm-hmm. help them address the unique needs of LGBT older people. So um, it was important to me to do a couple of things, to represent as many letters of our alphabet as possible, but also in this particular case to show people in a middle-class income level. Uh, so that's what we went after. And, and those folks were, because they were so 
um, fond and, and happy with the work of the LGBT aging project, we're more than happy to be in our film as well and be out and open. Um, and, and I don't think any of us realized how successful a film would be. If, if, if I were to today to tell them, would you be in this film that's going to do all these wonderful things and be seen in all, you know, all these places around the world, would you be in it? I'm not sure that, I'm not sure they would all be as out of <laughs> as they have been. But maybe Lawrence would be. Let's give him, you know, basically the last word because we're we're starting to run short of time. But uh, let's hear his his um, the conclusion of the film. I am in love with somebody. He is a very important reason why I am here today. I would love to send you a dozen pale yellow roses just because I want to. But we both know I can't. When he started crying, I couldn't look at him anymore. Because I knew (laughs) I would never get through. So until I can, I will pretend not to notice you so much. Not to want you so much. Not to love you so much. But we both know I can't. And Alexander is also entitled for me to be there. It's good. Maybe I shouldn't be concerned about what people think. I'm losing my fear of life. I was marching, and one of the thoughts that came into my mind was, I am so glad that I'm alive, that I didn't end my life. I wonder what's going to happen next. If if we are saying, come out and, and be filled with pride, it's our responsibility to make sure that continues right through their last day. It's made me feel proud about being a gay man and getting old. And just to fill listeners in, uh, Lawrence's longtime love, Alexander, was at that point in a care facility declining, had been for a long time. So he was talking about that balance of, of, um, those two relationships and and I have to say what I loved about that was you live until you die basically <laughs> um, so Stu I just want to thank you so much for being here we could talk another hour easily I'm sure and uh, I hope you'll stay in touch oh yeah it's fascinating and I thank you for doing all the work that you're doing absolutely you too next week I'll welcome Rachel Cadenaz When her husband died, she was left with a two-year-old and a corporate job. Her own process of addressing that loss led her to a passion to educate corporations about how to better support grieving employees, especially when they have to return to work too soon. We'll be talking about her book, Grief in the Workplace. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. 
Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.